0: We'll hear argument next in case 09834, Caston v. St. Gobain Performance Plastics Corporation.
1: Mr. Castor. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When Kevin Caston told his employer that the location of the time clocks was illegal and that if they were taken to court they would lose, he filed any complaint within the meaning of Section 215A3 of the Fair Labor Standards Act because filing includes an oral communication because any means any, which includes formal, informal, written, or unwritten communications. And the words of, in the statute were designed to have a broad construction under Section 2 of the statute, 202, and under Mitchell v. DiMario and the Tennessee Coal case. I'd like to begin with the Tennessee Coal case. Tennessee Coal versus Moscata. The court interpreted work in a broad fashion to include the time in a mine when workers were moving from one place to another, not actually engaged in physical labor. In interpreting work that way, the court said that the act is not to be interpreted in a narrow, grudging fashion.
2: What I'd like to give you—let me give you this example: suppose a company has an established policy that if you want to make a complaint, there's a particular supervisor you should go to. And let's say they say, you can make this complaint in writing, you can make it orally. Now, there's uh, something's going on in the workplace and a supervisor happens to be walking by. Maybe a machine is broken, uh, an employee has been hurt, and uh, an employee walks up to the supervisor who's walking briskly by, taps the supervisor on the shoulder and says, the company's violating the Fair Labor Standards Act because of the placement of the clock. You said that filing has no formality requirement. Would that be the filing of a complaint?
1: I think it would, Your Honor. I don't think that the fact that the employer has a policy that says you do it on a Tuesday morning would control what the statute says, uh, one way or the other. So I think it would constitute a filing of
3: a complaint. So you mean the, that the, if the uh, Government says you've got to file a complaint with us by either calling us or submitting something in writing? And at a cocktail party, a worker goes up to a government employee in that agency and says, you know, my company's violating the law, that that's enough?
1: I don't, uh, you know, I don't believe that that's, uh, in the context of a non-work environment, Your Honor, I would note that, I I don't, I I don't know exactly the answer to the Court's question.
3: The reason I'm asking that question is related to Justice Alito's question, which is what does filing a complaint mean? Does it have to be relative to the procedures adopted by the person that you're reporting this to?
1: Filing means directing it to somebody who can do something about it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be. What's it
3: why, at a cocktail party, that employee might be there on personal time, but when he goes back to work the next morning, he could do something. Is that enough?
1: Well, it may be if it's directed towards uh, the responsible party, then it would
3: be filing a complaint, and uh, so it could occur outside of work. So what you're doing is stopping the government from saying the only way that you can file a complaint with us is to do it in writing. We're now forcing the government to adopt an oral procedure, even if it chose not to, even if it thought an oral procedure would create havoc, et cetera, et cetera.
1: If the person is directing the complaint to the government and communicates that to the responsible party who can do something about it, uh, I think that they are filing a complaint, Your Honor.
2: Well, it's now, one thing to say that filing uh, doesn't necessarily mean that something is written, although that's usually what the word means, isn't it?
1: It can often mean uh, a written communication. Are you
2: filing your comments right now?
1: I think I am, Your Honor. You, I'm directing you are? them really? to the court? Uh,
2: I, that's the ordinary usage of the word. But to say that it 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 includes no degree of formality—that's your argument.
1: Well, your honor, I would I I would say it. There are no formal requirements for the filing. I would note that if that's
2: the law, an employee gets fired, and the employee says, "Well, this was done in retaliation for my having filed an FLSA complaint uh, three weeks ago." The employer says, "What complaint? We have no record of any such complaint." employee says, oh, yeah, I, I said it orally to a supervisor who was passing by, and my buddy Joe is there, and he can — he's going to corroborate this. So now we have a trial about whether a, a complaint was filed?
1: You might have a trial, Your Honor, depending on the circumstances. It, there might be one. The, the thing is that that's no different from any other retaliation case. They're trying to establish an exception to the rule that retaliation occurs in, in verbal forms, Uh, The communication, the underlying protected conduct, occurs in verbal forms all the time. They're trying to establish the exception here. And I would note that even under the National Labor Relations Act in Scrivener, filing charges includes the verbal communications that are the antecedents, the predicates to filing the charge. With whom? With the responsible party. Who can do something about it? I would note also, uh, Your Honors, that uh, Kevin Kasten doesn't have an office. In terms of the formality of the communication, there's a discussion about the fact that this occurred in the hallway uh, outside of the place where they walked in and out of the uh, factory. He doesn't have an office. That's where he communicates with people.
4: Why do you feel the need to go beyond, say, what the AFL-CIO identifies as a normal oral uh, filing? They they, they use language like uh, The initial stage of the grievance procedure, there is confrontation with an eye to fact finding. I'm adding a little. The dispute is joined when the employee or the steward and the supervisor come face to face to to identify, to discuss, and hopefully to resolve a problem. Now that's a formal kind of relationship. It doesn't involve a cocktail party, uh, and yet it is done orally, and there is a tradition as to how that works. But from what you've said, I gather that you want to go well beyond that and provide that cocktail parties, perhaps not cocktail parties, but just a tap on the shoulder, would be sufficient, where I take it that would
1: normally not be sufficient in the grievance process. Well, the grievance process is, Your Honor, uh, the grievance process is a formal process, and so I wouldn't compare the average workplace. I
4: suppose I think that that provides a good precedent for Uh, for uh, oral filings. What happens then? What am I supposed to do in your case?
1: Your Honor, in the general proposition, we would be accepting of the Scrivener Rule uh, that the Court adopted in the 70s, that is, that the filing of a charge includes those things that happened orally prior to and around the time of the filing of the charge. That's what this is about.
4: You know, we're talking about a filing. In the grievance process, I don't want to repeat it, but it seems to me from having read the brief, filing takes place without writing, provided that there are these other safeguards which are described. Now, I want to know, in your opinion, is there a reason for not importing that into this system? I take it you'd win the case or maybe you'd lose it. I don't know how it works on the facts. I don't know what the filing was. Here.
1: In terms of the formality of the requirements, the Court may adopt formal requirements. Uh, the, the employer certainly did. Mr. Kasten followed those. What I'm looking at are the words of the statute and how they're normally And un- There's the word
4: filing in the ALCIO statute as well. So I'm looking for a way of interpreting the one in light of the other. Do you favor that? Are you against that? If so, why or why?
1: In terms of the procedure that they adopt, your honor, that may be an acceptable procedure. The thing that I'm looking at is the statutory language and saying it
5: wasn't. He didn't invoke the grievance procedure. In this case, he didn't invoke the grievance procedure. That's correct, your honor. So that would keep you out if that were the test that you have to formally invoke the grievance procedure. But if we are told that every other time the word file is used in this Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, it refers to a writing. And so you are urging a meaning that deviates from the standard meaning of the term in the very Act at issue.
1: I don't think I'm doing that, Your Honor, uh, with all Is there another
5: provision where the word file is used to mean something other than a writing?
1: It means, uh, according to the first enforcement action back in 1961, it means submit or lodge, Your Honor. I would note that the defendant's own policies use it to describe a verbal communication by protecting against retaliation for somebody who has filed a complaint for sexual harassment. They have used it in a manner that, as an example, to uh, obviously include both written and verbal communications. I would note that there was a procedure in place here, Your Honor, uh, that was – the policy manual. This, there was no grievance procedure for Mr. Caston. Um He did not have a. Yeah, that's
6: that's the problem. I mean, uh, you can talk about a grievance procedure. I suppose there's always one in in, in companies that that are unionized, but an awful lot of companies aren't. Um, your the, the 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 respondent is uh, is going to argue that uh, uh, this statute doesn't apply to uh, uh, to private uh, filings of complaints anyway that it relates only to the filing of a complaint with, uh, with the government, and uh, that, that's a new, a new point in this case, and, and normally I would not be disposed to consider it. My problem is I cannot decide on, on the question of whether filing means filing only in writing or also includes verbal filing without resolving that other question, that is to say, if indeed the complaint has to be, quote, filed with the government, I'm inclined to think that an oral complaint pursuant to procedures established by the agency which permit an oral complaint, even a complaint by telephone, would be okay. But, my goodness, if it applies to uh, uh, private employers as well, Including employers that have no grievance procedures, mm-hmm. including employers who have employees who go to cocktail parties, I am, I am very disinclined to think that, that, it, that it can mean uh, an oral complaint in, in, in that context.
1: Well, Your Honor, uh, I'm just looking at the statutory language, filed any complaint. It's important that the word any has particular meaning. I would note that if it is
3: filed, what's the meaning of filed?
1: It means to submit or lodge, Your Honor. So you're filing your argument
6: right uh, now. I, now, come on, people don't talk like that. I think that that, I, that, that that is absurd. You are not filing an argument right now. Nobody uses the language that way.
1: If I s- submit or lodge, that's the... And it's directed okay. at a particular... I have to be asserting it. Well, I'd like right. to go back to the I'm question. not
7: asserting... I'd like to go back to the question Justice Scalia filed just earlier. <laughs> what, 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 what would you say about uh, his point that it seems to me had substantial merit? It, it, it really, our determination, our, our, our interpretation of what filing means might well depend on whether filing in or a complaint includes intercompany complaints, the grumbling of an employee and so forth. Uh, and I recognize this, this argument comes up late. Um, has it been addressed in any of the other circuits?
1: Um, yes, Your Honor. There's been a n- number of the circuits have interpreted uh, this statute and included uh, the Ninth Circuit, the First Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, have all
7: uh, All have said the intercompany complaints.
1: Intracompany complaints. Uh, that is true as well in the Sixth Circuit. and It's easier to talk about the cases where that hasn't been true. In Memphis Barbecue, the Fourth Circuit; in Genesee Hospital, the Second Circuit. Uh, Memphis, the Memphis Barbecue case, really addresses the testimonial clause. Genesee Hospital is the only case in the Second Circuit where they've held that all complaints need to go to the Department of Labor. The one thing I would say about that particular argument, Your Honor, is that it makes superfluous institute of proceeding. It makes superfluous institute a proceeding, which are uh, caused to be instituted. If you file a complaint, it, uh, then with the Department of Labor, uh, their argument is, and I think it's true, that you institute a proceeding. So the statute would be redundant, and file any complaint would cover a null set. Oh, if
6: Well, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, you, you can complain uh, orally to somebody at the Labor Department. Who decides that the complaint isn't serious enough to uh, to, to warrant uh, uh, commencing a proceeding? I mean, if you go in and insist, I you know I want to begin a proceeding. That's that's something else. But you you can f- file a complaint orally without uh, without doing that. It seems to me.
1: Well, Your Honor, I think. Um if you have made the phone call and started the process, I think you have instituted the proceeding. Now, whether it gets — at what stage of formality it gets to, uh, I, I'm not sure, Your Honor, but I think you have begun the process of instituting proceeding or causing it to be instituted. That's one uh, — the, the other thing that not I'm to point out — Not if it's never
6: instituted. Not if it's never instituted. If no proceeding is ever instituted, you can hardly be accused of having caused a proceeding to be instituted. There's so a process- if you take an informal complaint and it doesn't go any further, and they ask, you know, do you want us? now, no, I don't want to start a proceeding, but, but this company is just, you know, it's acting improperly. You guys ought to look into that. That's, I'm, I'm prepared to say that's filing a complaint if you're only talking about filing a complaint with the government. But if you're talking about oral filings of the complaints with employer,
0: I'm very troubled.
1: Well, Your Honor, I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Council. Mr. Wall?
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. A number of the Court's questions are focusing on some of the practical difficulties here, and the Government wants to start by pointing out there are a number of statutes, 20 or more, that have similar anti-retaliation provisions. Most of those statutes cover oral complaints, either because Congress has said so and an administering agency has said so or courts have said so, and the kind of practical difficulties that the Court is raising have not proven unworkable under other statutory schemes. respondent can't point to a single other statute, addressing these kinds, of this, this labor context, that's been narrowed, excuse me, to cover only oral complaints. What it's re- one of the oldest, though, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it-, it Is it the very oldest? It may well be the very oldest. You're
6: talking about a really old, fogey Congress that, uh, that passed this thing. You
8: know. Justice Scalia, it's not the oldest. It was modeled on the NLRA, which is even older. And, for instance, the NLRB has found that if, uh, you know, employees are complaining to each other, that they can't be discharged under the NLRA's anti-retaliation provision. Or if an employee orally says to his employer, I'm about to go to the board and tell them you're doing something unlawful, the board has said you can't be discharged. What,
6: what is the language in those statutes? All those statutes use the language, file a complaint? Uh,
8: the language in the NLRA is file charges or give testimony. So instead of filing a complaint, it just file charges. But the language in many of these statutes and they're cited in all of the briefs is extremely similar. They refer to filing complaints or charges, instituting
5: proceedings and are, as you you, pointed, you, are you urging that if you just tell a coworker that that 's enough? I thought I mean the whole idea is to give the employer notice that something is amiss. So how would telling a coworker serve that purpose it, it
8: wouldn't under this particular statute justice ginsburg i didn't mean to, to imply under the flsa the flsa's anti-retaliation provision does not have an opposing any practice clause in the way that some civil rights statutes do like title seven so it does require submission of a complaint to an employer but that can take many forms and as as you pointed out justice scalia in this particular context filing something orally makes perfect sense we're not we're talking about the kinds of industries truck drivers, coal miners, migrant workers, where well, that's a perfectly normal use of speech, oral yes, communication. Yes, uh, I'm fine.
4: It's a perfectly normal use of speech. I accept that. But what is it that will surround this use of speech on a particular occasion with enough formality that we know it isn't something that would pass unnoticed and bring in a whole lot of things like the cocktail party example, uh, etc.? <coughs> well, I noticed there was a paragraph in the AFL-CIO approach. That, that, that's why I brought it up. Is that the right standard? What we say here may take effect or have influence, so so I want to say it correctly. What kinds of oral complaints count as filing a complaint?
8: Uh, Justice Breyer, I don't think the government has any objection to that standard, although I do But I would like more than that.
4: The government sees these statutes as a whole, so I would like the government's assistance on what words to write to be able to get this right.
8: So it will not be too formal. It will not be too informal. It will do the job. And I think the kind of indicia of formality you're talking about are signs that the employer has submitted to his employer an assertion of statutory rights under the FLSA. I think those are the two things that the lower courts have consistently looked to. And I think those indicia of formality are a good sign that the employer has, but they're not the only sign. If I walk into the happy hour and I've actually written down on a form okay. that my employer promulgates and I hand it off to my supervisor, I right,
4: fill in this blank. Then there must be surrounding the oral complaint sufficient elements of formality such that
8: that the employer has indicated the employee has indicated to his employer, someone in supervisory authority, that he is asserting statutory rights under the FLSA.
0: So if he just says. Um, to the employer, uh, you know, I think we ought to have a little more time to put on our uh, gear. Is that an assertion of statutory rights under the FLSA?
8: Mr. Chief Justice, I think that's a difficult question. I, I don't think it's presented here because this isn't a content case. Respondent- well, no, but
0: the idea, one of the objections to your position is that it's going to be very hard to figure out in a- any particular case what is in filing an oral complaint under the FLSA, because one, it's got to be reconstructed, unlike the situation where you have a government agency that's doing it, or you have a written complaint. And second of all, it, it's unclear, perhaps, for the employer to know that he's being charged with a violation of the FLSA.
8: But that question comes up in every case, whether the complaint is written or oral, to the government or an employer. If I right you know, now, if it's I'm, written,
0: if it's written, you've got a document that people can look like look at, whether it's the NLRB or a court. That, that they can let and say, yeah, this is a violation, assertion of a violation.
8: If I write down on a, on a form promulgated by my employer, I don't like where the time clocks are, or I think. But
0: it's on a form,
4: so we've got that. That helps a lot. Also, employer could have a notice, hmm. notice. If you really are upset because you think there is a violation going here, go to this microphone which is directly connected to the complaint department and cite the statute. That would work, too. But, but there have been years and years of, inter- you've just said, of statutes like this. You say that many of them operate orally. All right, what kind of thing, if you can help? Maybe you can't. Which is dangerous because then we just try to do our best and we don't have the labor law experience necessarily but but uh, what is the the form of words that we can use to separate the wheat from the chaff
8: but just by i'm sorry if 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 the formulation i'm giving you is not helpful but in in these other statutes where either by express language or regulation so for instance the surface transportation assistance act the adea or osha the, the language varies from regulation to regulation, and some of them it says lodge complaint, and some it says make a complaint. But
4: what the courts are looking at least like, I can look, because in about two minutes you're going to hear, I suspect, the other side say, see, see, we told you. Well, That's why you have to have it in writing.
8: I, again, and agencies have put these in writing, so at footnote 6 on page uh, I think it's 16 of the government's brief. We have the OSHA regulations. The STAA regulations appear at page, I think it's 21. It would so really be brief.
2: helpful if you could just give us the rule that you think should apply. I, I, it's the rule, Mr. You, you, uh, Mr. Castor's argument seems to be anything goes. Any oral communication to a supervisor I goes. Think so. Let me go back to the example I started out with. A worker has been hurt. A supervisor is going to attend to the hurt worker and – An employee says um, the company is violating the FLSA, and the the supervisor says don't tell me and don't tell me about it now. I'm doing something else. That's enough.
8: I think the test, Justice Alito, is whether the employee has submitted a complaint to his employer that has put the employer on notice that that employee is asserting statutory rights under the FLSA, claiming that he is legally entitled to something he's not receiving. If the supervisor walks in the next morning and says to his boss, Yesterday morning, while I was attending to the plant accident, Joe told me that the time clocks were in the wrong place. He's about to file. I think we need to fire him. He's a troublemaker.
0: That employee has stated a claim to the FLSA. Well, what if he goes to the boss and says, boss, you ought to do something. That railing is, is pretty dangerous over there. Again, does the boss me. supposed to know? Well, he's asserting statutory rights under the FLSA.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, I think they're probably not. The, the that would way,
0: not be filing a complaint. The,
8: I mean, I, I think it, as a content case, which this is not, it's unlikely that that is. Saying that you don't like something or you think it's unsafe is not actually saying that you're asserting a right to have it differently. But those are content cases. And here, there's no question that Petitioner asserted his statutory rights to a number of different people of the company. What Respondent's saying is he didn't do it the right way. If he'd done exactly what he did in exactly the same words, but he'd done it some other way, then he'd be covered. So what, this is a form thing. What did he do?
5: What did do specifically? I mean, you're saying that, that the employer has to know that he's making a complaint under the Act. So what, and you said here on the facts, that was clear that he did. If you credit
8: his allegations, which you have to at this point because the District Court granted summary judgment on a legal ground, what Petitioner says he did is he went to his supervisor. He said, the time clocks in the wrong place. We're not getting paid for all of our time. And then he went up the ladder to the human resources personnel at the company, and he said exactly the same thing, and he said, I'm thinking about challenging you on it in court, and if I challenge you, you'll lose. Now, whatever the test is, that clearly meets the bar for asserting statutory rights under the FLSA. And I think what it's important to note is that this Court has consistently, from the 1940s on, both with respect to the FLSA and anti-retaliation provisions more generally, in Title VII and other statutes, it has always given them a broad reading to effectuate their purposes. Uh, uh, Mr. Wall, I, I, this is just a
0: — Were you saying that the employee has to know that he's submitting a claim of statutory violation or the employer?
8: I think what the lower courts have said, and and I think this makes sense, is that the question is whether a reasonable, objective person would have understood the employee to have submitted a complaint. So if the employee does everything he can to put the employer on notice – it's not a defense for the employer to say that subjectively he didn't understand it to be a complaint. In those
7: circuits uh, where they allow intercompany complaints that are oral, can you give me any sense of how often this leads to uh, claims for retaliation? I mean, are they in the hundreds or just?
8: I-, I can't, uh, Justice Kennedy. All I can tell you is that the vast majority of circuits have found that intercompany complaints are protected. And it's not counsel. proven unworkable. Thank you.
9: Mr. Phillips? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. and May it please the Court and Justice Breyer, I will uh, say to you what you asked me to say, which is, I believe if you get done listening to my colleagues on the other side, it will be quite clear that this is an inherently unworkable standard that they asked this So why uh, is it inherently
3: unworkable here in any greater extent than it's unworkable in all of the other statutes where oral complaints are permitted? What makes this worse than those other statutes? What would create more cases in this area as opposed to some of the other areas? Where well, oral really, complaints are explicitly.
9: Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily any worse in this particular context. I do think what it, what it suggests is that the Congress that looked at this problem, which, as Justice Scalia pointed out, was the 1938 Congress, and what that Congress was saying is, you know, we are taking a very dramatic step. We are moving in the direction of federal regulation. this of is the and wages.
3: area where I'm sorry this was the Lochner era where they weren 't even sure they could do this, so but why should we read their language with a, with a narrow reading of any complaint?
9: Well, I think you have to read their language as the way it was written and as they would have understood it at the time, which is to file any complaint which as it would have been understood in '38, and, frankly, after that, when you file any complaint, that usually entails some notion of formality. And when you put it in the context of the specific provision, where it's not only file any complaint, but institute any proceeding, cause any proceeding to be instituted, would justify a at a of
3: proceeding. A grievance, would a bringing of a grievance, the example that Justice Breyer um, suggested, a, a employee goes to his union and says they 're violating the statute right. um, let 's grieve it right. and according to the proceedings established by the employer, um, they meet with the employer and the employee does everything in the grievance, and they now fire that employee under your reading. Um, that's not instituting a proceeding?
9: No, because a proceeding is, offici- is understood and it's used consistently in the FLSA as an official action by an, a, a government agency. So, no, I don't believe that is instituting a proceeding. Yeah,
3: then we have to address your second question, not the first. The well, oral I, I mean, would I, I, work in there. You're right. saying the oral wouldn't work in right. there. Oral doesn't
9: work in that particular But would it
3: work if they instituted a proceeding orally and the proceeding required itself to be to start orally well i i don't i mean the truth
9: is if if the employer envisions in 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 its mind that it is instituting a proceeding that's still not a proceeding within the meaning of what congress meant in 1938 it had in mind an official action by a government agency and and no no private employer is ever going to institute a proceeding within the meaning of that particular scheme you know and it's and it's extremely important in the context of of this particular statute. And the one thing I should have answered, Justice Sotomayor, to your question is, what's different about this statute than any other? This statute carries a criminal penalty with it. And no other retaliation statute except for one but there's, a But there's a, a
5: protection built in, Mr. Phillips. It says it's criminal liability only if it's willful. And on the civil side, the civil liability under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you certainly don't have to prove willful. You just prove a violation
9: right but the reality is is that this court held in the cit case that the court would not construe this statute broadly in order to expose people to
6: uh, potential criminal liability would, would how many, how many? any retaliatory action be willful i mean to, to say it's it's in retaliation means you're firing this person because of uh, the complaint
5: the question is whether the violation is willful the, the, the willful qualification in the criminal context is are you willfully denying your workers the wages and our right. statute requires right. nothing to do with retaliation.
9: No, I, I understand. Well, it does have something to do with retaliation. But Justice Ginsburg, I, it, it seems to me it's all of a piece, though, because the reason why you can be comfortable with a willfulness standard, even because it, which extends to, to uh, conscious disregard uh, beyond not the intent as well. But the reason why you can be comfortable with that is if you look at the way the statute is crafted in terms of the retaliation provision itself. It speaks specifically to formal actions that are taken, the filing of a complaint, the institution you know, of a proceeding. You
5: know how common is it to have formal prosecutions under this section of the Fair Labor
9: standard I, I don't believe there have been a, I mean, there are no it, — it's not a null set, but I don't believe it's a particularly — I don't think it's a large number of proceedings. But it seems to me, though, in in trying to understand what the Congress in 1938 would have done and trying to understand why it would have approached this in a narrow way and why this provision is aimed not generally to protect workers, but is aimed really to make sure that information gets to the Federal Government.
5: I thought that the whole idea of this statute is to protect the workers, and I'd like you to address particularly the Amiki's point that This statute in 1938, and the affected people, many were illiterate, they couldn't write a complaint. Many were immigrants who weren't familiar with the language. For that universe of people, wouldn't Congress have meant that oral complaints are okay?
9: Let me, let me, let me start by saying, first of all, even if the FLSA has broadly a pro-employee protective purpose, it's still important to recognize that the retaliation provision we're talking about here specifically did not provide a, a cause of action, a private cause of action until 1977. So that when Congress enacted this statute in 1938, it didn't say boo about allowing the employees to show up in court and to assert their rights. So this is not part of that Expansive grant rights to the employees' portion of this of this legislation, and then second, Justice Ginsburg, with respect to the to the specifics of what did Congress have in mind? It seems to me the better way to evaluate this is not did Congress have in mind a, a group of illiterate uh, employees or not, but what language did Congress use in trying to formulate the specific provision that gives rise to the protections against retaliation your, your,
6: your case would be a lot easier if if you didn't try to have it both ways to say number one it only applies uh, to filing complaint with the government and number two you say it also only applies to written complaints to the government I mean why don't you I, do I the, take the why first part don't you of give a break to the illiterate and, and let them and let them file oral complaints with, uh, with the government? Well, my guess is that the truth is they will be able
9: to file oral complaints with the government because the, the only thing that's left open is, is the precise form, hypothetical you gave, Justice Scalia, where you, you make an oral complaint and nothing gets instituted under in, in those circumstances. And it seems to me clearly in the federal government's authority to simply adopt a rule that says anytime anybody makes an oral complaint to us, we will institute a proceeding. And if the agency do- adopted that view, I don't think there's anything we could no, say. No, suppose
6: it says well, we, we won't necessarily institute a proceeding, but we will record it as a complaint.
9: I, I, I mean, my, my own view is that the better way of reading, I mean, that's a much closer case. I will concede that, Justice Scalia. My, my own view is that when you're talking about file a complaint, that's just not the way Congress ordinarily thinks about file a complaint. But the, the, the Justice use of file always has in mind written, I'm sorry.
0: Justice Scalia is hypothetical, unless I'm misremembering, and I think it's very common in, the, for example, the EEOC. People often file complaints, and then the EEOC considers whether right. it's going to or, institute a proceeding or not. right.
9: And, and, and we're not. I'm not quarrelling with that. I mean, I, I understand that. And the truth is, I you know, I think for another day the, the the issue will arise, and the court can decide whether or not a mere oral complaint to a government agency is sufficient to file a complaint within the meaning of the statute. But I do think it is fundamentally important for this court to decide. The, the underlying question of whether oral complaints are sufficient only in the context, in the first instance, of deciding whether or not it has to go to a government agency as opposed to any kind of private or intra-corporate activity. And How course, does it
5: work with respect to the more recent statutes, Title VII, um, the Age Discrimination Act, Disabilities Act? And
9: in terms of retaliation, Justice Ginsburg? yes.
5: If you have not filed anything with the government, but you have, uh, to your supervisor, impose, uh, opposed a right. practice.
9: No, no, the vast majority of those statutes talk about any action that, that uh, opposing a practice, and therefore they deal with a lot of intra corporate activities. Uh, the, and, and obviously at some point there is an issue as to sort of what the employer's intent is and how far it got up the ladder. But is
5: it, so in, in those cases, and I think you're quite right, in intra-corporation complaints count as opposing any practice has there been any huge problems about people saying oh i made an oral complaint to my supervisor and supervisor said i never heard of it
9: well i suspect that issue comes up almost every day and it is a problem but it's a problem that congress made a judgment That we would rather go ahead and allow those matters to be litigated and language that is very expansive in protecting employees from retaliation. And while I, I may chafe at that at times as a managing partner of a law firm, I recognize that that's the judgment Congress made. Here we're talking about a Congress that made a very different judgment about how it wanted to protect retaliation, and it was a judgment that was made It seems to me very much in the context of 1938. Justice Otomeyer, you're right. They weren't sure they even had constitutional authority to be adopting this approach. And they're attaching to it criminal sanctions, and they are not providing a private right of action. And in that context, it seems to me that this Court should comfortably say that this is a much narrower
4: proposition. Why, Why? What about Justice Ginsburg's question? I'm sorry? What about her question? In 1938, a lot of illiterate people couldn't have filed written complaints.
9: And Congress must have recognized that fact. Well, if they,
4: they did, isn't that uh, reasonable to think that they would have included in filing, in such circumstances, oral filing?
9: No, because it, under those circumstances, when you're going to impose criminal sanctions on somebody, you're going to say, we're not going to do that. But your rest-
6: easier answer is yes, but only with the government. Well, I like Why that. Why isn't that too? an easier answer? <laughs> I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable with no, that.
4: No, but I have <laughs> a problem. When you say, is that in front of us, do we have to decide that now? We're granted a different question, et cetera.
9: So, you, did, I mean, that's, you may not want to
4: give up your first point.
9: Well, I don't want to give up either of the points, actually, but the but the bottom line is, Justice Breyer, the question presented is is very broad. I mean, the, the question of whether this goes to a governmental entity is
4: fairly well, Then the it's question. odd that you say, it. it for, for, I gather as well, for about 50 or 60 years, the relevant agencies have interpreted the the statute the way that, that uh, uh, to include oral complaints, and that seems to me a fairly strong reason for continuing to do so if the, where the language is so allows it, and there aren't strong reasons the other way. Well, I don't know that there's 50 or 60 years of Maybe it's 30 allowing
9: years. oral complaints. 30 years. To be a, in, the, in the private context, there may be 50 to 60 years of allowing oral complaints being brought to the government agency, which I do think would go to Justice Scalia's point. But with respect to intra corporate communications, there is no 60 year practice. Do we own any deference to the government's position on this point? <laughs> I, I would not give any deference to the government's position, certainly not Chevron deference, because this is not an, a. Oh, matter- why,
4: why, why, well, a Chevron deference would depend upon the intent. I guess you're getting into an argument here that there's no re- to repeat in public. I mean, Justice Scalia and I don't necessarily agree on this you? <laughs> wait, 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 wait.
6: <laughs> well, well, I mean, regardless of whether we do, why, why don't you think we we have to give any deference?
4: Well, Chevron. I mean, I, it,
6: Chevron well, deference.
9: Yeah, there's no Chevron deference because no, this is not a matter that's been allocated to either the EEOC or the Secretary of Labor to. Uh, administer and to adopt regulation. But, you know, how do
4: we know? I mean, you, all right, if you want to get into it, they, this is a very minor sort of interstitial point in a statute that they administer, and there are lots of instances, I think, where the Court has said where these minor matters of how you work out the actual application of the word are implicitly delegated to the agency uh, to determine within the context of reasonable view.
9: But just as prior, I, I, that would strike me as a more persuasive argument if Congress hadn't alloc, hadn't delegated to the Secretary of Labor specific rulemaking authority with respect to specific provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act and does not have a similar provision in connection with uh, Section 215A.
4: But not everything has to be done through formal rules. There, there, there are many, many ways of right, agencies there, determining. agency decision
9: making, but we don't have that either. All we have here are certain enforcement actions that are being brought by the agency, and indeed, if you look at the enforcement actions, they all ultimately tie to some kind of official action by some government entity. None of the actions that, that, uh, that you can go back to and say I'm going to defer to this go into the circumstance we're talking about here, where it's a purely private action as opposed to some kind of a public. Uh, uh so we should
3: give it no weight at all?
9: I would give it no weight at all. Uh, but even if you Not gave it uh, it's persuasive weight. It's persuasive weight, as applied on the private side, is nonexistent. Uh, you know,
4: again, if if the issue were before — Why? The issue why? Why would it be different if an agency works out a system of deciding when a person is really making a complaint as opposed to an offhand remark? And that is good enough to run the Government of the United States, where they have — they're in this business — why, why couldn't whatever their indicia are there also be transplanted to the private side? Well, it, it might and get be. It that to work out all right. right but In but which case you'd be left, if you're going to say might, might work, then then uh, you're left with the simple argument that you don't think that this statute means to apply to complaints to an employer, written or oral.
9: Well, I, th- I think the answer to that question is you don't have anywhere near the 50 years of practice dealing with the specific hypothetical you pose, Justice Breyer. Right. Would you accept? If were to adopt would you think it now, you th- is
4: that a tenable interpretation? What this means is that written complaints are good enough to count as filings where you complain to your private employer, but written or oral count as a filing where you deal. To, uh, with the uh, government agents. I mean, I don't
9: think that's the most natural way no, to read is. this statute. And I think the right way to read this statute is to either say
3: yes, that an that,
9: that a, that a oral complaint is, is not sufficient. But, if, but I don't think you have to decide that issue. I think the better way to decide this case, and the more fundamental one, it's the one Justice Scalia com- is coming back to, is does it apply uh, outside beyond the government agency context? And if That, isn't, that, is that called,
5: isn't even brought up in the brief in opposition, right? It's in your brief on the merits.
9: It, it wasn't brought up specifically in the brief in opposition. On the other hand, it was clearly presented and decided by the Seventh Circuit, so it was in the case as it came to this Court, and the, this Court's rule is that you can defend the judgment on any ga- ground that's fairly presented. And, and this ground seems to me more than fairly presented since it On the
4: ground itself, is there anything in the legislative history of the statute that says it's limited to the uh, government?
9: Well, the, the, yeah, if you go back to the legislative history, there's a colloquy between the two senators. And I recognize some members of the court are unenthusiastic. No, no, no. Things, but, but the, you know, in that colloquy, they talk about malicious complaints. And it seems to me malicious, in that context, is talking about where you have essentially defamed your employer to a government agency. It could be. It could be
4: that they're thinking of malicious complaints and they're thinking of government agencies at the time. But neither their language nor their purpose, as history later shows, requires that limitation on scope.
9: Well, I think if you're going back and trying to figure out what the Congress of 1938 had in mind, the best way to do that is to look at the language chosen and the company that that language keeps. And when you talk about filing a complaint and you talk about instituting a proceeding or causing a proceeding to be instituted or testifying at a proceeding that's formal or, or belonging to a, to a uh, company uh, uh, committee that is again a governmentally uh, instituted uh, methodology the best way to read that is to say what they have in mind is an official government action of some sort and it how would it,
5: perf- how would it relate uh, to say an equal pay complaint because equal pay is formally part of the fair right it's tied to this. Labor Standards Act. But an equal pay complaint could also be brought as a Title VII right. suit. So, a, a worker just complains about the d- denial of equal pay to the supervisor. Does that is that?
9: Um, I, I have no doubt that an employee under those circumstances, if if discharged, would be able to make a claim under title 7 of retaliation for that particular conduct
5: and there's been uh you said there was no uh, whatever the government said 60 years but there's been uh, some 30 years or more experience under title 7 and other statutes with oral complaints to the employer as being sufficient right. to ground a retaliation claim
9: right and i and i think the key to this process Justice Ginsburg, is what lens you're looking at. Are you looking through the cracked and yellowed glass that I'm looking through from 1938 or the glass as it looks through in 2010? And the truth that is, is if you were going to it adopt this. It starts
5: in head, 1970s. I'm sorry? It starts in the 1970s.
9: No, to be sure, Justice Ginsburg, but, the, but the, this statute was enacted in 1938, and it was enacted as as fairly radical and made an, inert, an initial incursion into protecting people from retaliation, how doesn't purport to be as expansive as any
3: of the subsequent and — and, and the truth is can, — How can long I make this have part? collective bargaining arbitration agreements been in existence?
9: Since the Federal arbitration? Well, it actually probably predates the Federal arbitration act. How long — Oh, I mean, it would have been back around the same period of time in the 1930s. Right. Do
3: you think that when Congress wrote or caused to be instituted any proceeding under or related to this chapter, that they intended to exclude that proceeding and intended to exclude people who testified in that proceeding about a violation of the statute?
9: Yes, I I don't, I believe that proceeding is used in the Fair Labor Standards Act consistently throughout the statute to talk about government, official government actions and not simply. Can you point me to
3: something in the Act that defines proceeding? No, nothing. Related, the words related, proceedings related to this chapter as limited only to government proceedings.
9: Well, I mean, the, 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 the only the, — in the brief, we identified a number of places where, where Congress uses the word proceedings. And every place where they use the word proceedings, they have in mind an official government activity. And so I think it is the most re- logical way to read this particular language as, as incorporating that. Of course, you know, even if that were true, even if you we were going to preserve that, that still wouldn't be a basis for, for going forward with this case, because there was no proceeding that was instituted pursuant to, to no, informal to, actions that he took.
3: Then the we're case. back to whether Congress meant filing any complaint to be oral or in writing. I'm asking you a different
9: question. Right, I understand I, but I st- that. But Congress's intent
3: was not to protect a worker who publicly took an oath in front of an arbitrator and testified about a violation of law, that they would not have considered that retaliatory under the statute. I,
9: I do not believe they would have regarded that as retaliatory under the statute because of the fact that the way this is all set up is to, and in, in the way that it's just the narrowness of the Fair Labor Standards Act. The, and, Justice Ginsburg, to your question about the, the subsequent legislation that's all been enacted, it, it seems to me in a lot of ways that reinforces the core interpretive approach that I've taken in this case, because if it were absolutely clear that the language about filing a complaint and instituting a proceeding were as broad as, uh, certainly as the petitioner proposes in this case, which any kind of oral grumbling is sufficient, Congress never would have needed to, to, to deviate from that template and all of the legislation that came afterwards. And there are tons of statutes that say file a complaint, institute a proceeding, and otherwise oppose. And it would have been no reason for Congress to do that if this language would have accomplished precisely the same thing.
7: It's more of a question for the petitioner's counsel than, than you, but are, are you aware of any cases in the other jurisdictions where there have been per, uh, proceedings, actions for retaliation, based on third complaints to third parties I complained to the press?
9: Well, I'm sure there are such cases. I mean, I, don't, I doubt that they I – mean, Probably wouldn't come up so much in the Fair Labor Standards Act process. I mean, that's the problem: is it's got a, I mean, this is a fairly narrow sweep to it. Obviously, wage and hour is not a not a significant activity, but it but it doesn't tend to generate the same kind of intensity that you might expect out of Title Seven or the Age Discrimination and Employment Act or some of the other provisions. If there are no further questions, Your Honors, I would ask the court to affirm the judgment.
5: Just one question: sure. It seems to me if you, if you you're saying the only complaint that counts is the one to the government, isn't in, in the work setting that's being regulated, wouldn't there be every reason to want the employee to complain first to the employer rather than making a federal case out of it by complaining to a government agency?
9: I, I'm intuitively, I, I don't disagree with that, Justice Ginsburg, but, but when you have to go again. What was the purpose of this particular statute? And this statute was not intended as a protection to the employer or to, or to the employee or to the employer. This is a provision that was designed to get information to the Federal Government, and we know that because there's no private right of action to the employee, that it is enforceable as a criminal sanction, and if you go back to the precursors of the Fair Labor Standards Act. and Somebody asked, "Is this the first one?" It's, I, I gather it's the third one. There was a Railway Labor Act, there was an LRA, and then there was this, this particular provision. But if you go back to those precursors, you see that it that, that it's a, again a very narrow approach uh, that's taken under under those statutes as well.
0: But what if you're an employee of the Treasury Department? You have an oral, oral complaint to your superior. Is that Uh, that filing a complaint with the government?
9: I I mean, part of it depends on whether the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to Federal employees. You know, there's a whole separate regime that deals with Federal employees. And candidly, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm not 100 percent sure whether, whether this provision applies under those circumstances. Okay.
1: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Castor, you have five minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. We have two agencies here that have interpreted the statute this way, and it's not just enforcement actions, but we also have the EEOC manual. We also have other acts, the Surface Transportation Act. Excuse me. I
6: I don't understand how those agencies have any part in the administration of private lawsuits under under this statute.
1: The Department of Labor administers all of the the, — It administers uh, lawsuits? No.
6: I mean, it seems to me it's a matter for the courts. Uh, yeah, I mean, an agency interprets the statutes that direct the agency's own actions if it has to enforce things and so forth. But where there's a provision for, for a suit in court, it seems to me it's up to the courts to decide what it means.
1: That may be true, Your Honor. We have the identical language in the Surface Transportation Act and OSHA, which the agency does have regulatory power over and has interpreted this precise language to include oral communications. In addition, the Migrant Workers Act, Council wants to suggest that all of this is a throwback to 38. The Migrant Workers Act, which was adopted in 1982, has the very same language. It is implausible to suggest that Congress would think that a migrant worker was leaving the field and writing up a memo and bringing it back to his supervisor in order to assert his statutory what, rights.
6: What, what do you mean by the very same
1: language? Just, just, just. filed any complaint. Filed a complaint. And, That's the language. And, and the remainder of, the of it. Workers.
6: Institute a proceeding. goes. Be a uh, member of a committee i mean he 's relying in large part on, on the context of filing a complaint. Does this statute have those other provisions? It does not
1: have those other well, provisions it's a big difference well, I, I uh, respectfully disagree, your Honor. I also suggest that what we were talking about in the very first case that this court dealt with a, after the act was passed were coal miners. Nobody is taking i, I don 't think it would be plausible to suggest that Congress thought that coal miners coal miners uh, Factory workers, line workers, they don't write memos. With all due respect, Your Honor, lawyers write memos. People who this act was intended to cover, the poorest and the least educated people in the country. That's why, under Mitchell v. DeMario, and that's why under Tennessee Cole, the Court has taken the position that this deserves, has to have a broad interpretation. Employees are the engine that actually
3: enforces this act. The that in that goes to um, your adversary's first argument, or second argument, uh, where he says, when this act was passed for all of those people, they would never have thought of going to their employer because the work ethos at the time was that those employees couldn't complain to their employers. They would always naturally go to the government. Um, how do you answer that? How do you disprove that point that historically at the time this was passed in one thousand nine hundred and thirty eight that there was a, a number of those employees who, as a regular course of their business, file complaints with their employers as opposed to the government?
1: any complaints, your honour. Filed charges was the the previous language in the National Labor Relations Act. Congress adopted a different phrase here, any. I'm sorry, the — Any, filed any complaint. Filed any complaint. In Rosenwasser, this Court said that the criminal liability concerns of the employer were addressed by the word any. In other words, when they suggested under the Act that there was criminal liability and they didn't know that piecework employees were covered, the Court responded in 1945, the word any — resolves any kind of ambiguity the employer should have had. In this case, any means any and all, uh, and that is without limitation. That is the kind of complaint that is protected under the Act. On December 11, there's no question in this case Kevin Kasten asserted his statutory rights. This is a case about form over substance. Form over substance. That's what we're talking about. On December 11, 2006, Mr. Kasten was fired. The same day, they changed the time clocks and so that everybody else would get paid, just as he complained they weren't properly legally being paid before that. They changed the clocks the same day. If — now, there were a half a million complaints last year at the Department of Labor. If the Court should find that every complaint needs to go to the Department of Labor, then when I get a call — from an employee, a disgruntled employee, who says my paycheck was wrong or there's something wrong with my overtime or calculation, I'm going to say you can't afford to call the Human Resources Department and have a conversation, a friendly conversation about this, because if you do and you happen to trigger a statutory assertion, that will be unprotected. You're going to foreclose all the internal communications that could occur. And Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. The case is submitted.
5: Yeah. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.